0: This is the Game Changers podcast, where your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise,
1: Philip Cummins, and predominant educational thought leader, Adriana Di Well, the Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of the 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't want or wait for permission, leaders in education, actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they fostered the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are going to be their stories.
0: Catherine Misson, is an educator with over 30 years of experience in shaping and delivering exceptional experiences for children in school settings she has been a school leader in australia at melbourne girls grammar she is currently at havergal college in toronto in canada she is outspoken she is erudite she is a really significant voice In the world of education today. There are many young people who have really benefited from her leadership and her teaching in in earlier years and particularly young women all around the world now have gained in character and competency because of what she's doing. We can't wait to talk
1: with her about empowering young women in in the new world environment. Let's go. Well it's great to see you too Phil and uh, Catherine thank you very much for for being part of our Game Changers podcast. Let's launch straight into it. And my my first question to you really is around, can you tell us a little bit about your own story? What has brought you to where you are today?
2: Uh, I suppose my journey starts with my own educational experience. Growing up in a small coastal town in New South Wales, very compromised educational opportunities. My mother had attended an all girls boarding school in the Hunter Valley. And so I had the opportunity to do likewise. And I was surrounded by strong women in that school. And I was encouraged as an emerging leader uh, to take it very seriously that if I had the opportunity to influence uh, positive outcomes for other women, that should be something that I should have a commitment to. Um, I decided very early that education was uh, the space in which I wanted to have a career. And I pursued that and I was lucky enough throughout my career to have strong women mentors. And um, I think all of that has come to fruition through my dedication to being an educational leader in um, all-girl environments.
0: So so what role do you think, Catherine, current leaders in education have in building the capacity of emerging leaders? I mean, we we all benefited from having great mentors and leaders. Um, You and I actually shared an amazing, female mentor earlier in our career, Joe Carollis. Um, yes. what, what role do we have as leaders to help shape other emerging leaders?
2: I, I think we have an exceptional role to play. I mean, young people in our schools, they're figuring out who they are. They're working out what they believe in. And we're there to instill a confidence in them. But also, uh, I would call it a moral imperative to leave school, particularly if they have the gift of of a great education, and do something with that that is going to influence not just their future, but a a shared future. You know, that notion of a higher purpose is very important. We know in the research for mental health and well-being, it's there. But in terms of knowing that we're now in a, a, a new human era, um, a digitally immersed era, uh, it's, it's a culture change, uh, it's an economic change, and we see that our institutions, they're not, they're not being very resilient in the face of this. So we have an incredible opportunity now to really influence young people to um, seize this opportunity to be a new kind of um, force for leadership a new kind of force for community and national development.
1: Catherine you, you were the recipient of the John John Lang Award for a professional development uh, for outstanding kind of leadership in that area of, of, of developing the staff and, and I believe that's during your time at Melbourne Girls Grammar. Can you talk a little bit about to our listeners about what that commitment to professional learning looked like to empower those staff?
2: Well, I really believe that human beings don't do anything simply because someone else wants them to.
1: Yes. (laughs)
2: Um, And it strikes me that we've had many generations of trying things out in schools and, and rebounding. Um, And I read a lovely little book that influenced me greatly a couple of decades ago called Tinkering Towards Utopia. It was by a couple of American um, thought leaders in education. And um, it really encouraged me that given the opportunity to lead educators forward in a way that would require extensive professional development, I needed them to choose to to go on that journey. And so at Melbourne Girls Grammar, we really created what we called a customizable environment for professional learning. We made really clear in an accessible way, what the vision was. Uh, and we articulated that as uh, a talent profile for an educator to be on this journey, to be able to work towards um, enabling this vision. These are the types of educators we require. These are the attributes, these are the skill sets who would like to be on board with that. And even in the first wave of implementation of the New Seniors Program, which I know gets a lot of attention, yes. um, that. People who worked in that first iteration did so by choice. Mm -hmm. So we took away the whole notion of of professional learning being done to you, uh, and we really worked hard to make sure this was not a passive environment and was very much about co-construction. I really believe that you're better off to have um, just a couple of beacons, you know, a smaller group of people who are really on board and let them demonstrate how exciting that is. And also they demonstrate that, you know, I can do this, you can do this. If, if, if you're choosing to have this experience, um, you can be in this with us and you will succeed.
1: You you took that vision a little, a step further. So it went from, from just kind of the localized element of the staff at, at, in your school context, and you established in 2015, of course, the Center for Educational Enterprise, where, where the professional learning and opening and exposing um let's say next practice uh to to people beyond the boundaries of melbourne girls grammar can you talk a little bit about what the motivation was to be able to do that uh in terms of a systems thinking approach
2: well it was my view that we were capable of providing leadership beyond our own walls you know in Melbourne on anderson street um And that, again, this notion of morally having that responsibility to share and to lead forward, extremely important to me in my personal orientation. Uh, But I I had colleagues who were very much um, of the same mind. And also there's an enriching, there's a robustness when you bring other people into your environment, into your community. Um, and into that around that table of sharing, and, and I felt that we would benefit just as much as anybody else who said, Hey, I'd, I'd love to come to Melbourne Girls Grammar and have a look. Uh, the number of connections we were making through that centre because of that um, generosity in the space.
1: Yes. And
2: I think, again, this is not an era in which it should be about competition, this has got to be an era where it's about, again co-construction, you know, those circles of co-construction, it might start inside your own community, but then who can we partner with? National, international, and so forth. And there's so many of us now leading in education who are like-minded around this imperative to move our institutions forward.
0: Uh, it's It's such a broad and expansive and exciting view of learning for our colleagues in that sort of context, what do you believe is the purpose of school in today's world? Why do we do school, Catherine?
2: Isn't it a great question? Why do we do school? I don't know why we do school, which is why I started talking about we, we should be a community. The, the, the word school has so much baggage. I, I don't think it reflects any anymore what um, is required for a young person to have an experience Day in, day out, if you go to a school from kindergarten to year 12, it's up to about 15,000 hours of a young person's life. So that's where we drove forward with this notion of um, a community center, in which the experience of being a young person would be played out at Melbourne Girls Grammar. I like the word community because it is, starts with that notion of relationships, relationship with yourself, relationship with others, and then relationships amidst the networks and further out. Um, And I think that young people really need good adults around them who can support them to know who they are, first and foremost, but really assist them to have outstanding interpersonal skills. I really do believe the research that um, those that will thrive in this, you know, fourth revolution era in the fully digitalized economy are going to be the humans who um, can relate in powerful and positive ways and are incredibly articulate and um, can take others with them in the direction of what is best for them and for others.
1: So let's let's move then the conversation to the the broad theme of today's kind of podcast, and that's about empowering young women. You've been a a great champion for young women, and I was really fortunate uh, a number of times to visit uh, Melbourne Girls Grammar with the generosity of your staff. And not only did I encounter the generosity of your staff, but what I encountered were young women who deeply believed in their capacity and their possibility. And every young person that I encountered there in that particular learning community uh, spoke so positively about what is on offer and how they are immersing themselves in all those various experiences so they can discover their own real kind of human possibility and their their, their endeavor. I, I came away inspired every time from that, but particularly because these young women believed that they were equal that they belonged and that they were worthy. So that that's that's really significant to me as an educator, because those aha moments are really important, irrespective of gender. But we know there's a divide, and we know we know there's a divide not only uh, in our country of Australia, but across the globe. And we also know there's a divide in education from a from a leadership context, uh, because there are more women in education. Yet, of course, we know that there's still are more men in significant positions. So, why has this been particularly important to you?
2: Well, I am incredibly aware and do not accept uh, the inequity in uh, the spheres of influence and power Uh, in Australia. I start with my own experience, but this is replicated worldwide. Uh, And I am embarrassed that in Australia, though those statistics are actually going backwards. So over the last five years, Australian women have gone backwards. Um, When I speak to young women, um, because I very much overt this agenda of inequity, um, because I think being armed with facts and evidence is very important, Uh, when I say to them, you know, girls, at the rate we're going, it's going to take 300 years for women to catch up um, economically to men, it's almost unfathomable. Um, And so there has to be real intent by leaders in girls' education to equip girls with the confidence and the purpose to make a difference to that. And to do that, we have to call it out. Um, You know, silence is such a powerful weapon. In Australia, silence has been used to maintain all sorts of inequities. Um, You probably know I'm very active around um, supporting um, Indigenous scholars in girls' schools as well. I'll get to Um, that
1: a bit later. Yes, keep going. Yeah,
2: sure. So, you know, I've done everything I can as an educational leader to really encourage girls to speak up, but to speak up in an informed way. Yeah. Yeah. And so listening, and, and thank you for that description of the girls at Melbourne Girls Grammar. Um, but when I listen to you speak about them, what comes to my mind are all the ways in which I and my colleagues, with my encouragement and I hope with my role modelling, um, shone a spotlight on the various elements of what it is to be a woman yeah. in, um, in the Australian context and really provoke the girls to, to develop an opinion on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to say to you though the girls would tell you with great humour oh here goes Mrs Misson again talking <laughs> about feminism
1: Right, right, yes <laughs> There it is There it is, there it is. <laughs> Catherine, Catherine,
0: I'm really interested in the notion of, of, of being a provocateur as, 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 as I intimated earlier, you and I we've known each other professionally for the better part of two decades now, possibly <laughs> even longer than that and oh. you, have, you have taken seriously that role of, of stirring stirring the pot um and it's it's a profession that doesn't take kindly to stir it. how have you how have you found how, how have you been able to make your way through there given that most m- most educators like prefer harmony to conflict they, yeah. they prefer niceness and gentleness to yeah. to 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 a grittier edge
2: i recognize what you're saying phil i think for me I've been really consistent with what I've been saying over a long period of time. And I hope that I've walked my talk. And so I think that people do understand that I'm speaking from the heart and I'm speaking with great passion. And I also hope that people, when they listen to me can hear that I am well researched. Uh, I do have an evidence base uh, from which I speak. The most controversial thing though, that I actually did in my time at Melbourne Girls Grammar was call out the inequity in um, philanthropic um, activity between right. say a boys school and a girls school, um, which was really interesting because it's in the financial um, lane way that women um, are most disadvantaged at every point in their lives including, for example, if we step out and have a baby, uh, it even compromises our superannuation. I mean, there's just every element. Um, But that was the thing that caused the most heat. Um, In terms of everything else that I've had to, you know, that I've sought to share an opinion on, I think the steadfastness and the fact that it is over three decades that I've been using my voice, not, not to advance my own position. I hope that it, what's, you know, what people hear is that I'm using my voice to advance the position of women generally. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so I, want I want to explore, explore then, then uh, a, little a little bit, bit about, about girls', girls education. education. We're, We're now in now in a, a, a world of constant, constant change. change, and that, and that uncertainty, uncertainty is the, is new, the new normal. normal. And, and uh, you know, uh, you know science, science is telling us, telling us about, about climate change. Science, science is telling science us about, about growth um, explosions. explosions. You, know, you know, we've got the we've pandemic at the, at the moment, moment around the world, the world of coronavirus. So so we're, so going, we're to going to be in this be constant play of uncertainty, of uncertainty on, 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 on a frequent basis. Knowing all, basis. all of that, what, what then does a quality, quality girls, girls' education look like in this kind of a new
2: paradigm? Well, I... There's several elements to that. First and, for, first and foremost, it is the um, the healthy development of a young woman, yep, yep. Uh, and that she has a toolkit to self-manage and to self-advocate for her well-being, uh, so that when she enters into the maelstrom of whatever that future, I actually think there will be diverse scenarios in that future, mind you. Yes. Um, yes. That. The starting point is that she's ready to go, and her mental and physical and emotional and spiritual well-being will hold up in the face of 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 what challenges she faces. Um, secondly, an inner confidence. Um, two words I hate hearing together are "good girl," right. um, because it's such a passive description. So I. Used, um, really say to the girls, you know, you you need to see yourself as an active um, agent of influence, starting with influencing what it is, you know, you want to experience, what are the opportunities you want to make for yourself or seize for yourself, and then how you can be an agent for change in other ways in the world, depending on those personal choices. And then there is um, immersing the girls in an experience of an education that is wrapped around with digital culture. So I'm really strong on it's. It's not about technology. The era of technology has actually come and gone. We've got that.
1: Yes. We've yes got yeah. that. For
2: human beings, you know. But understanding what it means to say I'm living in a digital economy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Understanding what it means to say I'm going to be having um, my important relationships in a digital um, society. What does that actually mean? And how how am I going to equip myself um, to experience this in, in healthy ways and powerful ways? And the other thing that um, matters is that centuries and centuries ago, millennia ago, women missed out on the economics of money. Mm. So we don't want girls to miss out on the economics of digital. So we don't want girls to be just the programmers. We want the girls to be um, the well-equipped leaders of the digital businesses that are emerging and beginning to really flourish all through every layer of our economy. We want them to be the ones who can actually sit at, at the governance tables and understand what it means to provide good governance for digital-based businesses in digital economic flows. Yeah. yeah. So it is a new millennial opportunity for women, and we have to be alert to that and intentional about equipping them, and it, particularly with the understanding of what it means to be a part of that, and to do it now and not to wait. Okay.
0: Thank Catherine, you, Catherine. That's that's it's uh, again, it's it's inspiring stuff, and I'm hearing you talk to um the well-being of a young woman I'm hearing you talk to about the whole experience of learning I'm hearing you talk about uh an historical context financial literacy these are big things that speak to the whole person what do you say to the teacher who turns up and says I'm just here to teach physics I'm just here to teach history I'll just you know that's all that's bit much for me. I, you know, I can I can sort of jolly them along and get them good exam results. What do you say to that teacher?
2: I really empathise with how they're feeling. I mean, the world is not waiting for the fact that we have a couple of generations of teachers who are living out potentially, you know, the the last phase of their careers. We know that the statistics in Australia about this retirement zone we've got coming up. We, the world is not waiting for teacher um, programming or faculties of education in universities to necessarily catch up. Um, So I do empathize with the way they feel, but at the same time, I probably have a conversation with them about, well, we're here to provide the type of education that will equip this generation of young people, um, the, the 2030s, the 2040s, the 2050s graduates. Uh, with the skills, the attributes, the understandings, the toolkits to thrive out there. So, you know, how can we do that together? I, I think that, you know, we are not going to see our way clear in building this really new vision of education in the next three or five years. I think it's still potentially 10 to 15 years away. I'm struck as I I move now from Australia to Canada. That the conversations are the same, but what we built at Melbourne Girls Grandma was um, was quite ahead of, of what um, yeah, I yeah. find here. I find, and and there are exceptional educators here, and um, the, the the willingness is is there, but the how and and the governance groups um, they they are struggling to find their way. So I think. Um, the role of people like us is to again sustain the narrative be encouraging <sighs> hopefully be inspiring yes um, human beings tend to jump on board a vision when when it's relatable but it, it's uplifting as well
1: to complement uh uh you it's really clear to me that uh, you've had this this career where agency and an advocacy has been the common thread particularly around student voice and empowerment. One of the things that you did particularly well at Melbourne Girls Grammar from my perspective was that you you did change the narrative because you created a learning ecosystem that created brand new workforces within within a kind of school community. And what I'm talking about there, of course, is the introduction of, of kind of defined roles around wellbeing coaches, academic coaches, fitness coaches, uh, particularly, of course, at that, that heralded kind of senior end. I, I appreciate that. Uh, and and I know that when I was talking with some young women at, um, at Melbourne Girls Grammar about that experience, I remember there was this one particular girl uh, whose name will remain nameless. And, and she was sharing with us how she was perhaps misusing the available periods for the first kind of, you know, three weeks. But very quickly, she caught on that that wasn't going to serve her well in in, in any kind of given way. And that was through a a rich conversation, not only with her wellbeing coach and her academic coach, but also with her peers who, who were actually adopting to this new paradigm where they felt that, gee, adults are trusting us to make really good decisions for ourselves and that was a kind of new paradigm, yeah? And yeah. and I would imagine when you sold that concept to your staff, it would have been very foreign. Mm. And it would have been foreign to the parents. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you went around convincing the adults in that learning community that this new learning ecosystem is the way to go forward?
2: Yeah. Well... We had a couple of years leading and I think one of the most important things I did to demonstrate that when you put the trust with the young people, they generally will rise to the occasion and with a great deal of excitement. So several years before, we actually made the senior year's curriculum full choice. Now, what we meant by that was that we would offer the whole suite of courses, including any um, learning, we call them learning pathways or disciplines that were mandatory under the regulatory system. Um, but it was all bundled up, sat on the portal and year eight, girls would go in, review all the courses and not only choose the suite of courses for year nine, but the level at which they wanted to study it. So for the first time at Melbourne Girls Grammar, we were saying to the teachers, we know you have all this assessment data on, on the girls.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: But the girls will choose the level at which they will go in. Every girl has the opportunity to reinvent herself academically. If she wishes to, of course, she may seek guidance. And of course the refrain from the teachers was, well, what if the wrong girls choose the wrong courses? <laughs> yeah. Cause it was, it was placing the girls in the driving seat and that was uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, And the girls just charged in and took a majority of advanced courses. I have parents saying, can this be right? Are they the right courses? And we just held our ground. And, of course, the girls demonstrated, you know, their engagement levels went, you know, even higher. Uh, The academic data started tracking even further up. I love Uh, that because... Sorry sorry, sorry to interrupt interrupt you, but
1: but I love love that that because because I've never really really encountered a student student that... Place wants wants to to play small, small, and that when presented presented with the opportunity opportunity to stretch themselves, themselves, I've never never really found a a large large volume or or, or or a critical mass say, "Oh no, no, I'm I'm going to do something something that I think I'm I'm less capable capable of doing." doing. doing. You know,
2: no, and and human beings are wired to to thrive. I mean, that's that's what we're trying to do in this world. We're trying to thrive. I'll often point out that every baby born into this world is born with a genetic disposition to want to succeed and be happy what we do to them during the, you know, the journey of school can make a big difference to that continuing as, uh, as, as, as the experience or not. So anyway, that that flowed into and helped, it was an evidence base, one of the evidence bases to support the move that we made Correct. towards greater agency. But we also had alongside the greater agency, the capacity, real time for capacity for co-construction Correct. between students and teachers. Yeah, yeah. And by about six months in, in the first year, I I mean, I can't, it made me smile every time I went into into a learning commons and saw a teacher or a group of teachers sitting with a girl or a group of girls discussing the experience of the course, not, not just how, you know, how your marks traveling along, but the experience of the course. And so I'm, I have this little uh, mantra about designing curriculum to be restless. Mm. That we should always be in flux and in flow, um, and I think that that 's a real match for the era that we 're entering into, and it 's certainly a match for um, a curriculum experience that puts the student at the heart of it and advances their agency
0: um, just just uh, catherine i 'm hearing you talk a lot about choice and agency and voice which is which is terrific, which is if you like uh, uh, largely about the journey and in terms of the destination. Um, the sometimes controversial Canadian um, thinker and, and, and writer Jordan Peterson says that we have a moral duty to pursue that which is meaningful. How do you help girls to pursue that which is meaningful with their agency?
2: Well, that's a very subjective question. Mm-hmm. To pursue that which is meaningful. Yes. And what is meaningful to me may not be as meaningful to you know a sister, mm-hmm. a close colleague, So this is the confidence piece with girls Mm -hmm. sitting at the heart of confidence is I am, I'm at ease with who I am. But also I think at the heart of confidence is, but I'm going to continue to grow and learn. So, you know, who I am today may not necessarily be all of who I am in a year, in five years, 10 years. So the idea that we grow through the relationships we choose to have, whether they are personal relationships or professional relationships, et cetera, really important. And women, you know, the research is there that women tend not to feel so comfortable with themselves, tend to be um, vulnerable to um, what people think of them and also the projections of what girls should be and should not be. And um, in an all-girls environment, you can do some fantastic work to to silence those external limiting voices and open up the space for a girl to really, I suppose, commune with who she is as a starting point and, and how she would like to become a person in the future. I sometimes say to the girls, you know, girls, if a decision is before you today and you're really unsure, think about the person you really want to be in 10 years' time and make the decision that that person would make because if you make the decision today based on you know that profile of the person you want to be it's likely going to be the right decision a good decision it's going to add up to that to becoming that that strong woman
1: one of the other areas of your passion over the years and real commitment has of course been to indigenous education and you were uh, a chair on the Indigenous Education Focus Group, I believe for about a seven to eight year period. And and there's no doubt in the area of New South Wales where you grew up, you would have been a uh, witness to how Indigenous children uh, were compromised in terms of health and their education. Can you talk a little bit about your commitment to Indigenous girls in particular, and why that kind of... Uh, I suppose, exposure during your formative years uh, influenced you to make this something that is so significant as part of your mission in life?
2: Yes. Well, um, growing up on you know the northern coast of New South Wales, I did observe an absolute massive gap in um, health, in educational opportunity, economic opportunity. Um, And it disturbed me and um, I would say at times, you know, really bordering on anger about it because there didn't seem to be anywhere to go with, you know, my my views on that, that I would think that there would be hope in order. Um, And so in choosing to go into a Bachelor of Arts at the University of New South Wales, I chose to study Australian history with a particular emphasis on the Indigenous experience in Australia, and um, and that 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 exposure added up. You know, it extended the the um, foundational observations that I had, um, and so when I had the opportunity to choose the schools that I would work in and eventually lead in, uh, it was in schools that could commit to having uh, and supporting um, an Indigenous um, scholarship program or outreach program. I'm really strong about the idea that um, Australia's had a very, very long time to sit around, to talk about, to hypothesise, trial policies, um, but not really getting on with what a colleague of mine calls mature citizenship and doing what actually needs to be done uh, and that's by bringing indigenous people right into the center alongside um, those who have been you know leading policy and and other provisions and opportunities and opening it up and really um, understanding through their through their voices and through their insights what we can do together and so my involvement with indigenous scholarship programs has very much been in um, to open up the opportunity, but to be in conversation with the families of of girls who would choose to come and be a part of scholarship programs, I didn't ever want to collude with the notion of doing things to Indigenous um, people, um, or being um, in any way condescending in in you know sharing an opportunity per se.
1: It's um it's so refreshing to hear. You speak today, Catherine, because so much about what you say is about doing something with others, you know, with Indigenous Australians, with young women, with your colleagues, Uh, this kind of co-creation and co-producing learning communities um, is probably at the heart of, you know, tomorrow's schools. And and ecosystems, I mean, there was a time where everything was done to young people or done to the staff, but to include them as as significant players in the dialogue and the co-creation and conversation is truly inspiring to hear too. And I just want to say thank you for the way in which you continue to lead in that capacity. Let's talk about your own personal leadership along that that journey of, you know, 30 years of experience uh, in in particular education. Uh, No doubt there were some missteps along the way. Can you talk perhaps to our listeners a little bit about what were some of the greatest lessons that you learnt from moments of misstep or failure or uh, moments of trying and it just didn't work out?
2: I think that I've really learnt to temper my passion <laughs> um, It really took me by surprise when I figured out that people were misreading my passion. Right. Um, And um, that's such an interesting psychological um, insight. And so I make sure that, you know, in the first uh, phase of um, entering into a conversation about something that I'm thinking we now need to do this next, and it's a big step, uh, and it's likely requires system reform, that I am... Actually, not doing much talking at all. Right. Uh, I'm asking some very pointed questions and I'm circulating through, and usually in spirals of connections uh, with um, teachers, with students, uh, with parents, um, to figure out where the vulnerabilities are going mm-hmm. to be
0: mm-hmm.
2: when I begin to tell the story. Yeah. I think the second thing is that I've learned to keep the story really simple. Um, it can still be a complex story, but it really has to be simple because I've, I've learned too that not everyone um, can or, or, or is interested in seeing what you're seeing in five years' time. Yeah. Um, I've come to understand that that's probably one of the things that God gave me the, the gift of being able to do. Um, it means I can back plan. I can, I can see in the end a sequence of projects that will lead up to, you know, that vision. Um, but that can be overwhelming for those who don't want to be there. They just want to be here. They want to be with you and they want to be on the journey and they're going to trust you to figure out that sequence over a period of time. Um, so I'm, I'm really clear the decks of, you know, anything that's, over wordy or over overdone. Um, let's just keep the story simple. This is where we are. This is where we need to get to. There's going to be a couple of phases, guys, and there's going to be a couple of key projects. Yeah. Believe me, it's all going to come together.
1: Um, <laughs> oh,
0: well, it's there, such, it's, there's a lot of trust in that. It's such, it's, <laughs> it's such practical wisdom. Uh, Catherine, I think there's, there are there are educators out there who are ambitious and who want to build this new world of of learning and of community with other people—it's really important that they've got the opportunity to uh, to hear from 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 the pioneers, the trailblazers who are actually doing the sorts of things. Um, you, we know that you've 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 jumped continents and you've jumped time zones and you've jumped. Um, temperature zones as well too, <laughs> to, to go to Canada. What's, what, what, what are the challenges for you in Canada? What are the other challenges that you're looking forward to?
2: Um, well, I expected there to be a culture challenge and that was part of going international, uh, to experience that, for that to put pressure on my own personal value system and to see how that stood up. I mean, a minute ago, I, I talked about having the confidence that you will grow and learn and become, ever becoming. Um, and that's certainly, in my first 12 months, that's certainly been part of the experience. Um, I really did assume too many similarities between Australians and Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that um, Australians can get to the point a bit more quickly, culturally. Uh, and I think that we, um, there is something that serves us well about that laid back piece that um, Canadians don't always have. In my experience. Um, but, uh, you know, Ontario was a great destination for me because of the investment Ontario has made in education generally yeah. and having the perception that there would be some amazing people to get to know in Ontario and to work with. Uh, and that's certainly the case. Um, I'm challenged by. The lack of development of the front end, the the user end of technology, um, but then I have to remind myself at Melbourne Girls Grammar we did a lot of the leading on the, on the front end development because of what we wanted it, what we wanted, and the timeline. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that. Um, works its way through. And what's really interesting about that is that Toronto is now rated as one of the top three innovation cities in the world. Yeah, have um, got a lot of startups, but you've also got a lot of the established big tech companies or, or tech-based um, uh, giants moving into Toronto, but education is underdone. And isn't that ironic? I mean, mm. that's so ironic, and there it is. So going back to my comment, the vision that we have, that we're really feeling really confident is the one for the way that schools need to grow and and develop, is not going to happen quickly.
1: Uh, This is my final kind of question to you, and this is kind of chopping and changing and moving away from what that line of thinking was just a moment ago. Uh, You've been able to, from a distance, see what's happening uh, in Australia, in particular around single-sex boys education. And some of the noise that has been in the press recently in relation to uh, issues of misogyny uh, and and issues of kind of this boys club culture that continues to permeate in some of our kind of institutions here. Mm-hmm. To move forward mm-hmm. on this particular issue, because it's so significant, because uh, the work that you have been doing with women has been significant in in influencing them around what more, a more equitable outcome for women looks like. And you've articulated that beautifully with us here today. But there's this whole, there's another gender that has a responsibility in this space, particularly around their unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that I know that I have been uh, very strong on uh, over the last say 12 years, having le- just left an all boys school context can you perhaps share with our listeners a little bit around your thoughts around how we can do this so much better together and why calling it out while men why men calling it out is just as significant as women calling it out
2: mm. well i think i certainly stand with the brand of feminism that say it's about all people wanting you know equity yeah. um And so that means that I, you know, I really know we need the good, you know, the 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 committed men, you know, in um in on this endeavor with us. I think there's a a couple moving parts to what you've just had to say, Adriana, and, and many of them underlying are really challenging. I think boys' schools have again an historical opportunity to not just call it out, but carefully craft wellbeing programs for boys and, and young men whereby they come to understand that w- what is the shared humanity piece between men and women. I mean what is at the heart there and that it isn't our gender, it is our capacity to love and be loved, it's our capacity for compassion, it's our capacity for forgiveness and that the world can only really um, survive the, the, the very significant challenges before us. If as many human beings are as well as possible, and yeah. kind of supportive of each other as possible, and figuring out, you know, really what are going to be complex solutions to these problems. Um, and I think it is in wellbeing programs that that sort of work can be done, because just as girls by the age of eight have um they've got all the stereotypes coded by the age of eight you know boys are actually the same Mm. and so schools actually have to create safe spaces in which almost they can deconstruct their identities for themselves in order to reconstruct it to be comfortable with themselves and confident um I think shame is something that is a really interesting aspect of being male that yeah. in Australia needs to be taken really seriously and take a really good look at that. And that behind shame is expectations, and behind okay. expectations is stereotypes. So there are things that I see are very common in purpose between a leading girls' school and a leading boys' school. Mm-hmm. Um, So I suppose the question then is how much of a difference does the identity of the leader make in the school? So if I'm the type of woman that I am and that obviously influences the type of educational leader I am and how that plays out in leading girls towards that more confident, better equipped space and reorganising the whole structure of schooling, to make that as palpable and powerful as possible. The question hangs in the air around same questions of the leadership in a boys school. Absolutely,
0: yeah. There's so much you've talked with us about today, Um, Catherine, you've talked with us about identity and and wellbeing, the experience of an education. You've uh, uh, demonstrated eloquently your advocacy uh, for equity, your passion for preparing children to thrive in their world. You are a genuine Game Changer. It's been a real pleasure talking with you.
2: Thanks very much, Phil Adriano.
1: Thank you very much, Catherine. You take care. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Samuel Wiseman from Audible Productions. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe.